I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast, in association with Line Trust, specialist fund managers. Hi there, podcast fans. I'm Tom Gibbs. Welcome to Total Football. Your Premier League champions Manchester City have been anointed thanks to bottom club West Bromwich Albion beating Manchester United at Old Trafford to complete a deeply surprising footballing week. Away from the top spot, there is a strong sense that the Premier League table is reaching its final form with a settled top four, a relegation trio rapidly fading over the horizon and a European adventure looming for Burnley. We'll be getting into all of it on this week's episode. We'll head to the Black Country and speak to a delighted Wolverhampton Wanderers fan about their promotion to the Premier League, the best thing to happen in the area since Babylon Zoo reached number one. Plus, a chat to Keith Hackett about the butterfly effect which Gianluigi Buffon screaming in a referee's face will have on the poor, unsuspecting fools putting their hand up to officiate Sunday League football. But first, back here in the Telegraph's audio recording facility, I'm joined by the emerging young talent of Sam Dean. Sam, how are you? I'm very well, Tom. Thanks for having me. Oh, always a pleasure, Sam. We will start, of course, at Old Trafford, where United's 1-0 defeat to West Brom has handed the title to Manchester City. Congratulations, of course, to City, but it's a bit of a disappointing way to win the league, isn't it? It is a bit, yes. And the fact that we all knew it was coming has sort of taken a bit of the, the shine off We didn't off it. know it was coming today, though, did we, Sam? We're recording shortly after uh, the, the game concluded. I, I noticed that Sky Sports weren't even in the uh, gantry bit. for they, they weren't doing their show from Old Trafford. It was all from the, uh, from the Monday Night Football studio. So it certainly took us from surprise in that respect. Yeah, we knew it was coming. It's just a matter of time. And it is definitely um, partly deflationary that they've done it via Man United losing in the rain at home to the league's worst side and one of the worst sides Premier League's produced in a good few years. Uh, I mean, this obviously will not matter to City fans. I can already feel them getting riled up at the suggestion that it's uh, it's taken any of the shine away from their title victory. And obviously, I don't mean to do that at all. But the fact is, if they won it last week at home to their biggest rivals, it would have been something to remember for years and years and years. But the actual moment itself, this time around... Slightly less spectacular. It's no, it's no Aguero moment, for example. Absolutely not. No. Do you think the shine has been taken off it slightly though by the recent results going out of the Champions League, obviously, and, and the defeat in the derby? 
Um, to an extent, yes. But the history books will say that this is one of the best Premier League teams that we've ever seen. Um, they played a style of football that is pretty much new to English football and is pretty much revolutionary on these shores. And that won't change. Uh, the discussion about whether they're the greatest team ever in the Premier League, and that certainly was one that was happening in December and November, that, that early on. It's when we were struggling to fill podcasts with uh, enough, yeah. <laughs> enough exciting questions about Man City winning all the time, I think. And a huge page spreads have been cleared in newspapers across the land before Christmas. But um, I think that's been affected by the Champions League defeats, uh, particularly by Liverpool, an English, English team, really. If they'd been done by Barcelona, Real Madrid, maybe we'd still be more confident that they are the greatest Premier League side ever. They're certainly up there. But um, yes, I agree that the shine of that has been taken away by the last three or four weeks. I suppose no one really talks about past champions and says, oh, they were a brilliant team, but they should have won the title two weeks earlier. I imagine we will probably all be over that fairly soon. Returning to Old Trafford for a moment, how did United go from beating City to losing to the bottom side in the league? I mean, it's just remarkable, isn't it? It seems to sort of, I mean, you look at the performance of Paul Pogba, for example, and Mourinho said afterwards that he took too many touches. He, he overdid it, which is precisely the opposite of what he did against City last week when he was so unplayable and, and tore, them, tore them apart in the second half. I mean, this sort of sums up United's season in a way that they've had this potential to play so well. They've had it there sort of simmering beneath the surface for so long, but there have been games where it's just not come out. And whether that's Mourinho's fault or the players not having the right mentality, as Mourinho has said, I mean, he was asked today, why didn't Pogba do the same thing again? And he said, ask Paul, which is his sort of his default response now to, to Pogba's struggles. But uh, it, it just seems that they're, they're close to sort of really hitting it and gelling and they've had moments where they have but at the same time you get a, a result like that or a result at home to Sevilla in the Champions League but all sort of fluency and coherence goes, goes out the window really. Yeah we're looking forward to watching Better Call Paul on Netflix soon. Um, Jose Mourinho also afterwards talking about uh, seeing his players um, in the moon which I assume means over the moon um, after beating City basically questioning their attitude. Did you get a sense of that today from United that they were a bit too pleased with themselves? Uh, to an extent, yes, and also they must have thought, oh, it's West Brom. They've not got a manager. You know, <laughs> this this lot, this lot are useless, really. Um, which West Brom obviously have been, uh, and also, I mean, we we can't know too much what Premier League footballers think, uh, but the the mentality of knowing, especially after last night and City beating Spurs, knowing it's going to come, what, what is it, it? Must change your mindset a bit. There's no there's no hope there that they could go on and win this league if Spurs had last night beaten City 2-0 there may have been a glimmer of genuine belief that they could actually close that gap and do something unheard of or spectacular really but uh, I think they just, they just knew it was a matter of time and at one point when, when that 50-50 is there or that ball's just out of reach are you really going to stretch for it are you really going to push for it when you know deep down that it's not going to matter in the long run and that your greatest rivals are going to be lifting that trophy in a few weeks time how big do you think the gap is between the two Manchester clubs at the moment, Sam? Do you think we're back to the Balotelli era where City were winning 6-1 at Old Trafford or is it a little bit closer despite the, the look of the league table at the moment? Uh, I think Man United are obviously a lot better than they were in that Balotelli era, um, but City are also a lot better, if that makes sense. Um, City have gone up a notch. They've played football this year. That's, as we said, the best probably we've seen in this country for a long, long time. And Man United haven't come anywhere near that uh, in their best performances. What I would say is that United clearly have the potential to push on from this side. And I'm sure Mourinho will get more money to expend. I know he wants more money to spend. And I really wouldn't be surprised if next year a few things that went City's way this season, they haven't had many injuries, for example. They haven't had many 
setbacks that have been too derailing until this last few weeks, uh, that could really swing it. And I think although the points difference is big, the actual gap there is not perhaps as big as people may think. I know it's bad manners to talk about your dinner when you're eating your lunch. Uh, we've still got some football season left to play, but what do you expect from United and City next season? I think a lot of it will depend on the transfer market. I don't think there's any chance that United's hierarchy would accept a similar drubbing in the league table that they've taken this year, and Mourinho certainly wouldn't, and he certainly wouldn't survive that, I don't think. Uh, the question is, I mean, Guardiola's had sustained success throughout his time as a manager, but arguably, well, I would say at least that, his first two years at Bayern were his best two years. It got worse following that. And the same at Barcelona when 2009, 2011, they won the Champions League. And then the year after is when it started losing a little bit of spark. So I wonder if his high intensity, the way he drills the players so intensely, is going to take its toll at one point. We've seen that with other managers who, I mean, Mourinho, for example, he his teams famously in the last few years have grown tired of his methods. Um, I, mean, I think it's unlikely to go to that extent with Guardiola, but uh, certainly interesting to see how the players adapt to having done this and won it, knowing that it would take something pretty special to do so again this time next year. You do wonder as well about City next year if they might just outright prioritise the Champions League. Well, that's the thing they're missing, and that's the thing that I'm sure the the owners want more than anything. Uh, A league title is fantastic, obviously, but they've done it twice before in recent years. Admittedly, they haven't done it quite as spectacularly as this and quite as... uh, Beautifully is this, to put it in more aesthetic terms. But that Champions League is the title that they really want. And I know Pep said over the last few days that he thinks the league's harder to win. And maybe that's true, maybe that's not. But the fact is, that's what's missing. And that's what takes City to that next level, and which is what the owners really want. City, of course, could only have won the league with a victory on Saturday, which they did in the evening game at Wembley, beating Spurs 3-1. What was different for them in this game, Sam, compared to the Liverpool defeats and, uh, and the Manchester United defeat? Well, I thought this game was really interesting because Spurs basically took City on at their own game. And I think they're probably the only side to really try that this season. They did it at the Etihad early in the year and got spanked about 4-1, but they really went for it. They pressed high, they tried to pass up from the back, and they played their own way. And they, I have a lot of sort of time for them doing that again, really, at Wembley, especially considering City's sort of poor, in inverted commas, run of form coming into that game. I mean, Pochettino... I'm reading his book at the moment. I'm a bit late to that one, but uh, I'm finally getting around to it. And he speaks a lot about the word bravery and how much he loves the word bravery in English. And he sees it in a sort of tactical, philosophical sense. And I think Spurs were really brave yesterday. They thought, okay, if you want to play like that, we'll we'll do the same thing and see who comes out on top, go toe-to-toe with you. But obviously they lost and they didn't come out on top. But I think that um, that approach allowed City to flourish, really. And De Bruyne looked back to his best. Uh, Sterling was electric again. I mean, that first goal from Jesus as well. I mean, just the speed of it and the way they just turned from... Kind of long ball to... again, like the Everton goal a couple of weeks ago. Just get, just get it up there very, very quickly. And they, yeah. you can get it to those players when the team's very, very high. As Spurs mm. will, good things will happen, I suspect. Um, very much enjoyed Gundogan's penalty as well. Uh, reminded me a little bit of Ronaldo's just absolutely leathering it as hard <laughs> as possible. So it hit the post. When you see players take them that well, you wonder how anyone ever misses a penalty. Like, you know, <laughs> it's Gundogan as well. It's not necessarily someone you'd expect to be... A set piece specialist. No, that that the, um, that Ronaldo penalty was funny, wasn't it? Midweek because he's often does a sort of little stammer, a little stuttery run up, or he he tries to put it down the middle, or he you know he aims slightly softer or chips it a bit. This time, I clearly thought, no, not a, not the last minute. I'm going for my sort of banker top corner, absolutely whack it, and it's just you just did it, it did it did make me think, yeah, why can't you do that? Do that every time, really? But he's he's clearly got this sort of 
radar where he can just put it where he wants, when he wants, at my, the speed he wants to put it. We will return to the Premier League shortly. But my favourite thing about that Ronaldo penalty was as soon as it was awarded, you just got the sense that Cristiano Ronaldo's internal monologue was like, amazing, I'm now going to score an amazing penalty and win this game. And like, I don't think there's another footballer in the world who would have such certainty <laughs> He was about to seize the moment. Very exciting. Yep, shirts coming off, lads. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> a few exactly. press-ups, get the pump on. A treat for all of us. Um, from the City team, uh, it is Sane and De Bruyne and Silva, all up for uh, player of the season, up against Salah, Kane and De Gea. Uh, who's winning it for you? Uh, ask me a month ago, I would have said De Bruyne. Uh, ask me now, I'll say Salah, I think. I'm probably not alone in switching my allegiances in that sense. City uh, players are splitting the vote, presumably. <laughs> I just think that Salah... Um, Salah's sort of picked up speed and gone up another gear over the last few months, whereas De Bruyne has slightly tailed off. I mean, that's harsh on him saying he's he's got worse, but he's not quite got better and better and better. His best performances came at the start of the season, whereas Salah seems to be digging deep and just finding more each week, uh, which for me, I think, has edged it for him. And I, I, I fully expect him to come come through and win that next week, uh, whenever the vote is. When is that? Literally no, literally no idea when the vote is happening. Let's move on quickly mm. to Southampton 2, Chelsea 3, a game you were at on Saturday, Sam. This was such a relegation-y sort of result for Southampton, wasn't it? It seems like exactly the sort of game which just demonstrates that the team is going down. Um, how much will the manner of the defeat affect Southampton, do you think? Yeah, I think that's a good point. That's, that was probably the most damaging way to lose a game, having played so well for so long and then just throw it away in eight minutes. I mean, in that 10-minute spell between 70th minute and the 80th minute, Southampton made eight passes. Eight. Including the kickoffs. <laughs> like that's, I mean, that it, it was a complete heads-gone moment, really. And the nature of the goals they conceded, they were just crossed into the box or long balls. I mean, the second one, Hazard had time to take a touch in the 60-yard box, pretty much, and just smash it home. And it's just unacceptable defending. And Mark Hughes said afterwards that during those times of games when you're a bit under the cosh and the other team's really pushing forward you need to have a bit of street smarts about you a bit more a bit of cynicism really um to slow the game down make a foul in the right place and just really just kill the tempo and he said that we didn't have those players and Southampton don't really have that kind of leadership in their squad I don't think and you look through that team and you try and see who will take the game by the scruff of the neck and say lads no more let's put a stop to this and there isn't anyone I mean they've sold all those players and they've been left with I mean, the one player you probably look at is Oriol Romeu, and he's had a really poor season compared to last year, and he's just completely in his shell when he needed someone to come out and grab that game and stop this flow going against him. Because you could see the tide was coming, but they could do nothing to stop it, and it was, yeah, really, really worrying for me. Hughes possibly needs to get back in touch with some of the Stoke players he ostracised when he went there uh, initially. <laughs> uh, how did he seem after the game, Mark Hughes? Um, was he was he sort of fairly upbeat and, you know, I think he saw positive next season, or, or does he already look a bit under the cosh to you? I think they're positives to take from that game and from the Arsenal game the week before when they lost 3-2 there as well. Uh, I like the way that he's changed the side to let Cedric and Bertrand actually run forward on the wings because they're, I mean, those two are the two full-backs, but they're quite clearly Southampton's best players, full stop, I think. Um, and getting the best out of them is, I think, going to be crucial over the next few weeks. But, um, but also, I think he knew, I mean, he said afterwards, look, I need to find out who my leaders are and who the players are who will put their bodies on the line. And I've learned today that some of them won't. And I think he's knowing that this squad's not got that gumption and that oomph that you really need to win a relegation battle. What about Chelsea? First half especially looked like they were on the beach and had put their towels down on the Europa League Sun Lounger. Uh, yeah, very much so. I was really surprised to see them come back. But once that first goal went in, the whole mood shifted really. Um, 
It's good to see Giroud get his first Premier League goals for Chelsea. Um, he has had moments where he looked quite good, he looked quite effective. Um, interesting because Conte's always said he wants a, a point of reference in his words, in his attack. Um, and Morata quite consistently fails to provide that, any sort of sounding board. But bringing on Giroud allowed Chelsea to push up the pitch, it allowed Willian to get more on the ball, Hazard to get more on the ball, you know, in the dangerous areas. And it really changed the way they were playing and it just went a bit more direct and Southampton couldn't handle it. Conversely to Southampton, uh, Crystal Palace 3, Brighton 2, a win over the arrivals, early lead, weathering a comeback from the opponents, hanging on for the victory. This felt very much like the result of a team that are going to stay up. Uh, yeah, completely agree. I think Palace will be absolutely fine. They've had a really nice run in and that's going to get even nicer. Zahar's on good form and he's obviously, I mean, he's a phenomenal player. He's He could be playing for anyone in the top six, let do, alone. Do you think he will Palace. be next season? I kind of hope not. I kind of, because obviously his Man United trip didn't end so uh, so well. So I kind of hope that he becomes a sort of Matt Letizia-esque figure because um, he loves Palace and he's, he does so much work in the community and he's a really, you know, he's from that part of town. He's a genuinely Palace, big Palace fan, really. He's, he's a Palace boy through and through. Um, I hope he stays. And I quite like the fact that the big six can't just hoover up everyone. I liked when Mares stayed, for example, in January because it means it, the, the more good players spread out. I don't know how much Mares liked the fact that he had to stay at Leicester in January. <laughs> no, well, exactly. But the more the more good players you have spread out, the more exciting the league becomes. So uh, I want him to stay. But yeah, I think um, Palace looking great and having Loftus Cheek back as well the last few weeks seems to have made a difference. And he's a, he's a top player. And him and Zaha seem to combine well. Townsend's doing well. I think Palace will be absolutely fine. The, uh, the worry will be Brighton for me. Yeah, difficult run-in for Brighton, uh, playing the top four and uh, European-bound Burnley. Um, do you think they're in trouble, possibly, still? Well, they beat Arsenal in March, and I thought everyone thought that was probably the moment that they were clear of danger. They were 10th at that point, and they've since picked up just one point from four games, and it's looking like they're really struggling for any sort of attacking threat. I know they scored two here against Palace, but in the second half, they tried to push on, and there was just nothing, really, other than the odd... Glenn Murray half chance and I worry that the wind's gone out of their sails a bit and they haven't got the players with the Premier League experience to know what to do when the going gets tough and I think that I mean you mentioned the fixtures they've got Spurs Burnley Man U Man City Liverpool I mean realistically getting any points out of that could be an achievement um, so they're I think going to be relying on others to not win i.e. Southampton to Stoke to not come back and move past them in the table mm. Also from the big book of crucial wins at the bottom of the table, Tom Ince scoring late for Huddersfield Mm. against Watford. Genuinely heartwarming reaction to this one in Yorkshire, uh, I thought. Uh, They're on 35 points now. Do you think they can stay up on that? Uh, Yeah, I think they'll have just enough. That was an enormous goal. I mean, I think in two months' time, I look back at that and see that as as the moment. And as you say, they sort of celebrated as such. It's just a massive goal in an awful game. It was the first shot on target they'd, they'd mustered all game. Uh, no wonder that dog looks so sad on the yeah, sidelines. Match of the day, yeah, I saw um, the mascot. He looks he looked miserable until the final minutes. But um, I, Huddersfield are interesting. I don't know what you think, but they've not been the most sort of fun addition to the Premier League. They're not like Bournemouth coming up and playing great football, and they're not, not like Brighton where they've had these wins against you know Arsenal and that kind of thing. Admittedly, Huddersfield did beat United, but that's pretty much the only standout result I could think of. And they've they've kind of rolled over against quite a few of the big teams, but they've sort of stuck in and just dug it out really and just battled and won the points against the teams around them. I mean, beating Watford at home is the kind of thing you have to do to stay up. So credit to them for that. But I kind of hope next year they can kick on a bit. Maybe this sounds harsh considering their size and sort of financial power and the manpower, but it, I'm a bit underwhelmed by Huddersfield. And that sounds really cruel, I know. 
Yeah, it's it's tricky to feel too uh, too upset with Huddersfield. I think once you've been there, it's uh, there's such a tangible sense that they're they're enjoying it, and that it's it's quite a unique stadium, a wonderful part of the world, slightly more beautiful than it probably gets credit for. So I'm I'm, uh, I'm loath to uh, have a go at them. Um, I, I guess it is quite a difficult thing in in your second season if they do stay up of losing a bit of that excitement about being in the, about simply just being in the Premier League and working out how you become a team that's. Actually going to have a bit more of an impact. Uh, what about Watford? Talking about an impact, uh, Javi Garcia has had very little impact since arriving. One point from a possible 30 away for Watford since December. Um, is it time for another rethink for them in the summer? Not necessarily <laughs> the manager, but just about you know what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, it's working, right? The, the way they approach things is working. They're currently 12th. They'll probably stay around 12th. They'll get another year of Premier League football. A Sacrosia in November, get someone else in, sack him by, sack him by the summer, and that that'll be the Watford way. Really, I mean, it's hard to sort of feel much passion towards them either because it's the way they do it and the sort of changing uh, style of play and the players come and go so much. And even people like Richarlison, who was so exciting at the start of the season, even he's sort of tailed off and been Watforded. And I kind of see it as like you know they're just a. They just sort of exist in the Premier League. I mean, that's I mean that's fine, and they're doing what they need to do to do that. But um, yeah, I expect Garcia will be gone. We get a new one coming in. They'll finish thirteenth next season, and Dini will score a few penalties and give it large once or twice, and that'll be that'll be the extent of the fun. Going to need some clarification on the verb Watforded there. Uh, <laughs> who's, who's the most Watfordy person who's been Watforded this season? Pereira. He was supposed to be a top player when he joined, and he's just been so Watforded. <laughs> wow. Well, we have an addition to the audio recording facility dictionary. Liverpool 3 at Bournemouth nil at Anfield on Saturday. A few misses from Salah before his lovely, inevitable header for the second goal. He probably also should have played in Trent Alexander-Arnold in front of the cop shortly before then. He's playing quite selfishly at the moment, isn't he? Is this a sign of how much he wants the golden boot? Does it, does it really mean that much to players, do you think? Well, I think we've seen in the last few weeks that this is the uh, the whole cliche of, oh, it's all about the team and all that. has completely gone out the window with uh, with Harry Kane. And Salah in the last few weeks, I mean, not just Kane's appeal for his goal against Stoke or goal that he may or may not have touched, but also Salah's response with the tweet saying, wow, really? <laughs> and, you know, it's all um, it's all come out in the open, really, that how much they really desperately want this stuff. I mean, it shouldn't be too much of a surprise, I suppose. But, um, yeah, Salah was playing yesterday as if he was on a mission to make up for that goal that he's lost to Harry Kane in the, in the race. And there were definitely a few we should have passed, and not least that Alexander-Arnold option. Good point from Klopp, I thought, afterwards. He was saying, um, you know, they were coming off the back of everyone telling they were brilliant after beating Manchester City. Um, but uh, they did very well, didn't they, against Bournemouth? They killed the game, they dominated it, and they got a, an excellent result. What does that tell you about this Liverpool side? I think it tells you more about the feeling around the club right now. That, that Those City games have given everyone such a boost and such an added sort of sense of security and belief. Um, that and the arrival of Van Dijk, obviously, who's made an enormous difference to the whole feeling of the side and uh, I mean you can imagine playing before with Matip and Lovren and just the midfielders are worried the forwards are worried they don't want to pass it back to them they're just a bit nervous where now everyone's sort of had the handbrake released and they they've been freed um everything just feels more more settled right now at Liverpool and they're obviously riding the high of this Champions League run they'll face Roma in the Champions League um what did you make of that draw do you think Liverpool will make it to the final in Kiev that's obviously the easiest draw of the three teams they could have got but uh if you're a Liverpool fan, I think you might rather get Madrid or Bayern Munich at Anfield with a chance to beat them there than in the final one-off in Kiev. I think that's a different different factor. Nobody wants to go to Anfield 
in the mood that it's going to be in on the semi-final of Champions League. And even Real Madrid and Bayern Munich might have been cowed by that. I mean, we saw that with City. They were absolutely cowed by that. The atmosphere made a huge part of that game. And that would have been a good advantage to have against the likes of Real Madrid and Bayern Munich. But uh, Roma are beatable, obviously, um, despite clearly being a good side. But uh, the task, I'd rather play Roma in the final, if you know what I mean, than play against Bayern Munich or Real Madrid without that and feel factored to work into it. Newcastle 2, Arsenal 1 was the score on Sunday lunchtime. Uh, Arsene Wenger striking a balance, isn't he? Uh, targeting the Europa League, it's resting players, but also uh, trying to balance that with not losing away at places like Newcastle. He got it wrong on Sunday, frankly, didn't he? But we shouldn't be surprised by this. Uh, Arsenal's away record has been absolutely horrendous. Yeah, it's been awful. They've not won a single point away from home in the league this year. I mean, that's just, I mean, it's a remarkable stat for a club of Arsenal's size. Would I be uh, jumping too far to say this is the first dead rubber of the season? Ooh. In that, I mean, Newcastle obviously were not safe, but they pretty much were safe, and now they are safe. Um, and Arsenal were playing a reserve team because they've got the Europa League to come. Um, so I looked at that and thought, is this the first one? I think it might have been, but um, obviously, as a result for Newcastle, that, that seals this sort of, uh, this campaign as a success. I feel like a match might get Watforded. Uh, which which could make it a dead rubber at some point in, in what remains of the season. Certainly not a dead rubber at Turf Moor, the battle for seventh, mm. uh, and Burnley coming out as 2-1 winners. Um, given the trend for everyone to massively underestimate Burnley, as they have done all season, is it time for us now to have a large bet on them winning next season's Europa League? I think they'd do great in Europe. They've, you know, they're, a, they're a unique sort of place to go. They play their own sort of style of football, and they'll rough teams up. Bring it on, I'd say, for them. The, the worry for them will obviously be have they got the squad depth to cope with it? Have they got the finances to cope with it? Uh, so you'd fear a bit for their Premier League future. I know it's a cliche often trotted out that the team in Europa League struggles in the league, but it is a fact. It, the Thursday-Sunday combination of games is a tricky one to deal with. And right now, the squad they have, I would say, wouldn't be able to cope with that at all. Uh, so you'd hope that Daesh gets some money to invest in that squad if they do get to Europa League. But I think the actual campaign itself would be an absolute laugh. It would be brilliant. Yeah, we look forward to that one. Swansea won, Everton won, finally, uh, to round off the weekend in the Premier League. I'm getting shades of Hull from Swansea under Silver last year, uh, who everyone said was brilliant. The manager's brilliant, like Carver How Everyone decided he was fantastic. Um, but they're not far off the relegation zone, Swansea. No, they're not far off. I think they've got enough. I think I disagree with you a bit. They've got enough to get through, and Hull were never really quite out of it, whereas Swansea have probably in the last few weeks stepped clear. Um, and they've got the beautiful flower, Jordan Ayew. Um, is, that, is that just your name for him or is that <laughs> a, a, a nickname he has no that's what Carver Howe called him last week because he's returning from his, uh, his three game ban from a red card uh, beautiful flower is back and he promptly scored a goal uh, against Everton put them level and with him up front and he's been really good since Carver Howe's come in and especially since his brother Andre was signed as well so I think they've got enough firepower going forward and enough security with Mawson at the back to cling on quite uh, just looking ahead to Monday night's game it's West Ham versus Stoke uh, Sam Wallace's Sunday column painted a pretty grim picture for Stoke City. It focused on Saido Berahino, of course, hasn't scored for more than two years. But it's just amazing how poor Stoke's transfers have been. Uh, Mbula, Muniesa and Bojan all out on loan. Um, has a potential relegation for them got the makings of a Sunderland-style disaster, do you think? Do you think they could shoot straight through? There's definitely a fear of that, particularly the way they've sort of lost all, as you say, identity. I mean, Hughes a few years ago, Mark Hughes came in and wanted to make them Stoke Colonna, didn't they? And Afalai was coming in, and you know the whole whole thing was exciting. And we are, we are not the old Stoke anymore; we're the new Stoke. And now they're really 
I don't know how Stoke play anymore. I, I don't know if they've got a particular style or substance to them, and I, I feel like that's that's severely lacking. And Lambert's tried to install a bit of fight, and he, he signed Badu and Dai, who is a scrapper, pretty much. And I do worry that that lack of identity is the kind of thing that will lead them to spiral. Let's call it what it is, Sam. Stokiness. They've lost their stokiness. <laughs> they lost their stokiness. They tried to reinvent their stokiness. And now they've stuck in the between and they've got nothing left. They'd, they'd love a Watforded, basically, I think. So. Yeah, they'd love, they'd, they'd love, they aspire for a Watfording. Wolverhampton Wanderers will be back in the Premier League next season after securing promotion without kicking a ball on Saturday. Broadcaster and Wolves fan Lindsay Hooper joins us now. Lindsay, after Sunday's 2-0 win over Birmingham City, Wolves are now just one point from the title. How far has this season exceeded expectations at Molyneux? Oh, it's really exceeded the early expectations. I think as the season went on, everyone got a bit giddy and thought, well, that's it, we're going to be champions. Um, I certainly started thinking like that more after Christmas, but given that we're Wolves fans and we've been there before and we've, we've had the highs and the lows, I don't think we thought anything was guaranteed but very early on I remember a lot of people putting predictions out there and saying you know we would be lucky to sneak a playoff place so it has definitely exceeded what we were thinking we were going to go into this season especially when you think that the the teams that came down from the Premier League including Aston Villa everyone predicted them to do so brilliantly that Wolves have really been a bit of a surprise package. Ruben Nevers scored an absolutely ridiculous goal in the week against Derby. Uh, he's obviously been one of the star men, but you can't go up from the championship with flair alone, can you? Who have been some of the less heralded heroes for Wolves this season? No, not at all. And I think it's so difficult to make a shortlist in terms of player of the season. I mean, Connor Cody, who's been in the fringes of the side for some time and then really has excelled under Nuno. I think he will be one of the players people talk about. Uh, Helder Costa, Douglas, there's there's quite a lot of players. I mean, John Ruddy's played his part as well in goal. I, I think there are so many players that deserve the credit. And I think that's been the thing here is that it's been a real team cohesive performance. But if you're talking goal of the season, then of course, hands down, Nevis is going to get that. Yeah, absolutely. No contest. How many players do you think Wolves will need to compete in the Premier League next season? I think you'll see two or three stellar signings. I mean, we've got this link with, with Mendes. And I can see us bringing in a two to three expensive signings over the summer window. And I think probably one in each area of the pitch, to be honest. I think we need something defensively, perhaps another option in midfield and another striker. I'm not sure whether Afobi is going to stay put. So I think those are the areas for us to be looking at. But I really do think that the backing is there from the board here for Wolves to go on and not just survive next season and that would be my early prediction is that I don't think it's going to be a case of going up and coming straight back down I think we're probably around the 15th mark I think 14th 15th I expect us to finish next season isn't that funny that I'm going for predictions already but um, I I just feel that looking at the caliber of this team the way we played against Manchester City the way we played against Liverpool in the cup I, I really think we will play football and I think we'll give some people uh, a real test Hi, Lindsay. It's, it's Sam Dean here. I was just wondering, for people who haven't seen that much of Wolves in the Championship this season, what kind of style will they be playing next year? I mean, you mentioned there that they'll play football and have a go. But is that what they've been doing this year, the passing creative football? Oh, yes. It's been very attacking, very much possession-based football. Um, really, on occasions, playing out from the back, which you don't see very, op- uh, very often 
in the championship. And I don't think there'll be any compromise on those principles. I think Nuno has got us playing a certain way and he'll go into the Premier League playing exactly the same. I mean, for those who like watching Bournemouth, who sort of stick to their guns playing the attacking style football that's easy on the eye. I think there'll be more of that from us as a team in the Premier League. And I do think as well, when needs be, we have got the ability to really get behind the ball um, and really play quite defensively when we need to. I mean, a lot of people have ignored the fact that we haven't conceded that many goals either. So... Hopefully that can continue, but of course it it does depend on who's brought in and it does depend on whether there aren't any drastic changes like someone whooping in for Nuno because I think he's been a key a key player for us in terms of a, a great manager and that's what we needed. We needed someone with a, a different approach. Is it ultimately all about Nuno Espirito Santo, Lindsay? Is he the main reason why Wolves have done so well this year? Yeah, I think so because I think those Portuguese links as well, I think he's been the attraction for some of these players to come and join us. And the way that he plays football and being quite stubborn about it, actually, I think he's never really wanted to compromise on the way that he wants his team to play, the way that he sets up. We've had options off the bench as well. And the development of youth at Wolves has been fantastic to see as well. And that's coming from him. That's from the top down. And I hope that continues and that he stays for a long time to come. Our Ben Rumsby had a story on Saturday that some of the Premier League clubs are concerned with uh, Giorgio Mendes and his relationship with the owners of Wolves. Is that something the club are going to have to look at? Oh, well, they would be. They would be concerned. Anyone in our position who could have those links. I mean, what is football? Football is a game based on contact whether you're Manchester City that can splash the cash or whether you're QPR, whoever you are, you're looking for those ways uh, of making sure that you've got an advantage point. And that's Wolves. And I, I think anyone in our position would take it. There is nothing illegal going on there. It's, it's a good relationship. Many others happen and people don't know about them. You know, there's, there's people that have got links through assistant coaches at other clubs and you know, you look at the big, big clubs and some of those have, have clubs that they often field out their players to. It's it's all part and parcel, I think, of the game. Was that the sort of general fan reaction to all these signings and all these changes over the last year? Because obviously when Neves arrived, there was a lot of shock that a player of this sort of calibre would come down to the championship. Are there any fans out there who are sort of slightly less uh, practical in their outlook at the Mendes thing and, and the situation and the way the club has changed? I think there are a few sections of Wolverhampton that nearly passed out when Ruben Neves signed, I have to say. I mean, this is a player that played in the Champions League and they were like, what? He's been in a Wolf shirt and people will remember watching him for a lifetime. It's been fantastic to see him in a Wolf shirt. Um, I think in terms of changing the way that the football club has evolved, I mean, we've looked at people like Watford in the Premier League who have changed personnel a lot. We've seen how the owners there have run things. And to be honest with you, although many might be critical of it from afar, they stayed in the Premier League and it's been a success. So I suppose it is a, it is a change of, of mode for us. Um, it's, it's very much having a bit more financial clout that we're not used to, but we are going to absolutely embrace it. When he did the stand expansion, the Stan Cullis stand, Lindsay, it looked like it might be a bit of a gold elephant for Wolves, but presumably it's being packed out now. How much potential is there in the area for the club to grow now, especially with West Brom, Villa and Birmingham not doing so well? Yes, and you talk about that stand. I remember when that first um, opened and it was partly empty and everyone was thinking, you know, we'd, we'd done the double drop down to League One and it felt like really dire times. And to be talking, you know, two, three seasons later and we 
really are feeling like we're going full throttle. We feel like one of the teams that people should be watching. It's been a brilliant turnaround. In terms of the region, I think, you know, Wolves have already had, um, you know, much support over the years anyway. And I think you see how many people pack out Molyneux week on week when they're at home. Um, I don't think we're going to have any trouble filling any extra seats. In terms of West Bromwich Albion coming down, which looks like it's going to happen, I suppose that's a little bit of a bonus for us as Black Country rivals that our rivals drop down the year that we go up. But having said that, you know, the Black Country derby itself is something to look forward to potentially at a point in the future. Hopefully in the Premier League when West Bromwich Albion returns to the top and we're still there. You did, did well then not to patronise West Brom too much. Thanks very much for joining us, Lindsay. <laughs> I'm glad I did. Thank you very much. <laughs> Cheers. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast in association with Line Trust. Specialist investors who help you head towards your financial goals. Independent thinkers who have the courage of their convictions to make investment decisions. Remember, investments can fall as well as rise. English referee Michael Oliver was on the end of some close-range fury from Gianluigi Buffon last week, which resulted in a red card for the Juventus goalkeeper against Real Madrid. Former referee and resident expert for youaretheref.com, Keith Hackett, joins us now. Keith, will Sunday league officials have been grimacing when they saw Buffon screaming in the referee's face? Absolutely. I mean, uh, and I, I suspect UEFA officials as well, uh, Pierre-Luigi Colina, who is in charge of the referees, made it quite clear at the beginning of the season that surrounding referees during the course of a match was unacceptable. And this was at the top of that list. I mean, uh, Oliver, you know, is a superbly fit referee and uh, he was in a great position to judge. It was a penalty. Uh, obviously, players at that time are going to be frustrated. You might just take a little bit of heat, but it went way beyond what is uh, acceptable. And uh, I think he left Michael Oliver no opportunity other than to uh, give a red card. Did you ever experience anything similar to Buffon's reaction in uh, your officiating days, Keith? I think it, I think we used to get it, but uh, far less. I think that we've got volatile players who have passion, who want to win. And at times, with the, with the international mix of players across the Premier League and across European teams, it's become much more difficult. And this is a highly charged game. I mean, I mean, Michael is 33 years old. He's a, he's a young referee in terms of match officials. You know, he's got another 20 years ahead of him. But nonetheless, he's a very experienced and mature official. And he's certainly at this moment in time, since Clattenburg left, England's number one referee. He's been elevated to the elite level in December. So there was a little bit of a surprise when I saw his name on the list. But that doesn't mean to say that he didn't deserve the appointment. Um, and I, I think, uh, despite all the nonsense afterwards, um, Michael has come out of this holding his integrity. And I think most referees are saying, look, that was a good, good decision that demonstrated a lot of courage. Do you think the age of the ref played into the reaction slightly? Will Buffon have gone harder for him? Because he saw he, he, he you know, he's, not only is he young, he looks very young, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, this is... Uh, I've refereed Italian teams, Juve, in the past, uh, some years ago, and there's no doubt that Italians do, at times, overreact and hunt in packs, and this is unacceptable within the game. They try to put pressure on Michael Oliver, 
But, you know, he's an experienced Premier League referee. Yes, he does look young, um, but he has maturity. I mean, I've been in his company, and, and I think that maturity has advanced remarkably in the last 18 months. He's become a confident, much more confident referee. He's still learning the craft. Uh, at times, I'd like him to put his foot on the ball and slow things down and and do a little bit of tempo management with the odd foul here and there, just to emphasise to the players and to the spectators that he's in full control of proceedings. Keith, with the situation, with the, the abuse he got both during the game and afterwards, particularly directed towards his, his wife on social media and that kind of thing, would that have been helped at all if he'd come out and spoken and explained not not just necessarily to explain himself but also to humanize himself and to put himself forward as a face and a person that makes sense well it does because michael is a very good communicator but of course he's not allowed to do that the football authorities want to lock our officials away and not allow them to have the opportunity to explain but i think any genuine referee watching that game and i think most spectators Impartial spectators would suggest that he got the decision right. He was a tight call. But, you know, if if I, as a, a referee observer, was watching that match, I'd, I'd ask him to talk me through the incident at the end of the match, and then I would explore with the player who committed the foul in the first place that, that the penalty kick was awarded for, why he, too, hadn't got a red card. Now, that's going a little bit deep. But that's the type of post-match examination of his performance that will take place. Where do you stand on the debate of whether refs should talk or not after a game? I'm all for communication, you know. Um, I think, again, it, it would be nice for referees to come out and explain at times. But I think also, I'm just so incensed by the fact that the Premier League have decided not to go with VAR, which I think is disappointing. And I think there are incidents that I've seen this weekend Yesterday in particular, penalty kick awarded for an incident outside the box. A couple of red cards missed that would have been seen by the VAR. And we would have come with an outcome of getting more accurate decisions. So I think referees at the very highest level do need the help. And I think with the exposure that referees have got at the Premier League level, then VAR needs to be brought in to help them. Returning to the subject of Buffon and the dissent he was showing, why isn't there more of a desire from administrators in football to just have a zero-tolerance approach to any sort of dissent like this? It's a balance, isn't it? You don't want to take the passion out of the game. And sometimes there is passion, you know, and, and we have to manage that. This steps over the mark. It totally and utterly steps over the mark. And the fact is that it's very public, um, you know, I've heard comments on social media about the fact that Joe Hart, a couple of years ago, was in the face of Michael. Michael didn't react. That, that to me, demonstrates how far Michael has come in his own performance, his own experience. I don't think he jumped in on Buffon, and Buffon was at him and, and clearly was saying things that were unacceptable. And, and Michael was left with little option other than to demonstrate his courage. And he is a courageous official. Uh, that, that says, right, I'm giving you a red card. And he, he knew thereafter there'd be some heat. I think it's a pity now that with social media, it, it does extend um, and, and does create problems for referees in these big games when the media go after the referee. Uh, I mean, we had this, if you remember, 
when Howard Webb in the semi-final, I think, in uh, some years ago in the European Cup, was threatened by the president of Poland. And that resulted in, in Howard and his family having to have secure, additional security around his house just to protect him. So I think these are un, un, unsavory aspects of refereeing that we want to try and avoid. But for me now, it's in the hands of UEFA, and UEFA have demonstrated in the past a much stronger sort of approach to these things than perhaps our own FA. And, and I suspect that they'll come down pretty heavy on the club and Buffon uh, in particular, and other players might well receive fines and penalties uh, that uh, add up to a few pounds. We look forward to totting up that total. Thank you very much for joining us, Keith. Pleasure. Time for your Hero of the Week, and it's a well-deserved victory for my personal Hero of the Year 2002. Yes, it's former QPR Maverick and current Wickham Wanderers manager Gareth Ainsworth. A 1-0 win for his side at Yeovil has put them in the automatic promotion places in League Two, and Ainsworth has now said he won't shave until Wickham lose. He told journalist Phil Catchpole, If it takes me to keep growing my beard to stay unbeaten, I'll look like ZZ Top if I have to. Sam, if you had to have a footballer's facial hair on your face for the rest of the year, Whose would you choose? Easy answer for me today is Thierry Henry. I know he's not a footballer anymore, he's a pundit, but he uh, he was sporting a quite bushy, more bushy than usual beard on uh, Sky Sports today, but there was a, it was sort of sparkling. It might have been the beard oil he was using, but it was genuinely like glistening like a, a Christmas tree. It was it was magnificent to watch. I almost got lost in it at one point. <laughs> yeah, it, I can't imagine how it looked in high definition. Absolutely glorious, I would imagine. That's it for this week's episode of Total Football. We'll be back with you in time for your Monday morning commute next week. If you would like to make contact with me before then, then why not try Twitter.com? It's at Tom with an H Gibbs. Do remember and don't forget to subscribe to Total Football through Apple Podcasts or your preferred non-fruity source. Our theme tune is by Polvo. Get involved with their back catalogue at MergeRecords.com. Thanks to Abby Patterson on the buttons and thanks to you for your company. I'll talk to you again soon. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast, in association with Lion Trust, specialist fund managers. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,